0: Well, if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 17, making our way through Matthew. Last week, um, we heard from Pastor Brent uh, talking about Jesus foretelling His death and issuing um, a call to believers, to Christians, to followers of Christ, uh, that they too would take up their cross uh, to follow Him. So a, a difficult call to, to take up an instrument of death uh, in our pursuit of Christ. But kind of the crux of the Christian life is, is self-denial and dying to self, right? Uh, and that was the call of Christ. And then um, the passage ended in Matthew sixteen twenty eight with kind of a controversial uh, verse where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And uh, people way smarter than me have debated over uh, long periods of time what Jesus was talking about uh, in Matthew 16, 28, as we transition into 17. And I'm I'm not going to solve the mystery today, but I'm going to give you some of the options, uh, some of the popular options uh, that are out there. the most popular interpretation of that verse is that Jesus is talking about the transfiguration, which is going to be our text today. Uh, and I probably lean a little more heavily that that's what Jesus is talking about. But some of the other possibilities uh, that theologians have come up with is that uh, when Jesus says that some who are standing here with Him will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, could be talking about uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, Could be talking about the resurrection of Christ uh, that's yet to come uh, from our passage. Could be talking about uh, the ascension of Christ uh, that Matthew records at the end of his gospel. Uh, Could be talking about just the general spread of the gospel and the growth of the early church uh, after Pentecost. Uh, Could be talking about the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in A.D. seventy. Uh, could be talking about the second coming of Christ, uh, which we all have been patiently waiting for, uh, or it, it could be all of the above, right? Um, but what what seems to make the most sense is the transition into our text today in Matthew 17, uh, where uh, we see the transfiguration of Christ. It says in 17:1 that after six days. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And so just kind of immediately on the heels of this statement about the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, six days go by and he takes uh, three disciples who he's maybe a little closer to than the rest, Peter, James, and John, uh, and leads them up to a high mountain. And this six days is kind of interesting as well. Theologians kind of debate. uh, There's a lot of correlations in our text today that we're going to see with maybe some things that have happened in the Old Testament. And this six days, uh, given what we're about to see, could be a correlation with Exodus 24, where the glory of God covered a mountain, uh, and Moses was called up the mountain after six days, and he took with him uh, three of his friends, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Um, If you want to look that up and read it for yourself, Exodus 24. Um, But we see that Jesus takes them up, and in verse 2 it says that he, meaning Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When his disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And we'll pause there for a moment. <clears throat> so Jesus speaks of seeing the Son of Man coming in His glory. Six days go by and He takes His three friends up the mountain and they get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, if you will, uh, of Jesus in His glory. Again, this correlates possibly to Exodus 24 when Moses went up the mountain. In Exodus Uh, 24 there was a cloud over the mountain and after six days Moses was called up to that mountain later in Exodus in Exodus 33 uh, we see Moses talking to God and he's asked God a question he says please will you show me your glory and God said I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock, and while my glory passes, I will put you on a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We don't have time today to fully unpack this, but again, we just kind of get this peek behind the curtain in Exodus 33 of God and His glory and revealing Himself in His glory to Moses, but also being merciful to Moses in covering His face so that He wouldn't die from seeing the fullness of the glory of God. One chapter later in Exodus 34, it says, when Moses came down the mountain, starting in verse 29... With the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. afterward, all of the people came near, and he commanded them that the Lord had, all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what was commanded. And the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. And again, we don't have time to to fully unpack all that's going on in this passage in Exodus either, but, but we see the glory of God radiating on Moses. Moses reflecting the glory of God in such a way that he had to veil his face from the people. And so this transfiguration in Matthew 17 where we see the transfiguration of Christ, it says, "...his face shone like the sun." Did you ever, when you were a little kid, maybe as an adult too, but a little kid, like did you have contests with your friends to see who could stare at the sun the longest? Right? We used to do that. Um, you didn't last very long, right? You, you can't stare at the sun all that long. Hopefully, you're not doing that as an adult. Hopefully, that was just a little kid thing. But Christ's face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Um, again, peek behind the curtain. We, we've peeked behind the curtain in exodus when moses had the opportunity to see in part the glory of christ uh, and here we see jesus lets a few of his friends peter james and john a few of the disciples get the same peak behind the curtain to see jesus in his full glory it's interesting that both in, in moses life and in christ's life we see these groups of men go up up the mountain three men jesus takes with him three men going up the mountain. Moses took three men with him going up the mountain. Galatians 2.9, Paul refers to Peter, James, and John as pillars of the church. Right? We have all of Jesus' disciples, but the three, Peter, James, and John, had some kind of special place to where the Apostle Paul would call them pillars of the early church. Moses had his experience on the mountain, and even Elijah had an experience on the mountain as well. Elijah's experience on his mountain is found in 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 9. And it says this about Elijah. It says, there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now leading up to this point, Elijah had this encounter. Maybe you're familiar with his encounter with the prophets of Baal. And they, they had sort of a contest, if you will, of calling down fire from heaven to see whose God would respond And if you know the story at all, you know that the God of Elijah, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, Yahweh, responded um, in in this incredible event that we see. And then very soon after, Elijah ran in fear of his life. So he's hiding out in a cave. And so God said to him in this cave, He said, "'Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord.'" And behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And Elijah heard it, and he wrapped his face in the cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, "'What are you doing here, Elijah?' And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Manola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and all, all the knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth has not kissed him. Some detail on, on Elijah and his experience in the mountain Runs in fear of his life and God meets him, not in the fire, not in the wind, not in the earthquake, but in the quiet whisper and asks him the question, what are you doing here? And I love it when God asks questions. God never asks questions because he doesn't know the answer. God's questions are not for his benefit, right? They're for our benefit, right? He's asking a leading question to Elijah. Essentially, he tells Elijah, like, I've got people, right? The sky is not falling. Elijah's kind of crying, the sky is falling and everybody's out to get him. But God tells him, I've got people. and I've got a plan. Here's the plan. <laughs> right? You're going to do this, and you're going to do that. You go here, and you're going to say this. And we've got 7,000 people over here who have not bowed the knee to a false god. And so essentially, he commissions Elijah to go proclaim the things that he told him to proclaim. And so it's kind of interesting that in our Matthew 17 passage, the transfiguration of Christ that we see with him, moses and elijah these are two people that would have mattered to the israelites that would have mattered to the jews and they would have been well-known historical figures even for those who didn't believe they would have been well-known historical figures right We, we go to mount rushmore and we know the faces on mount rushmore and we can look at them and we know why they matter we know why the faces are there right we know why that monument exists and we know in history what Washington and Lincoln and Roosevelt, we know what they did. Similarly, Peter, James, and John would have known why Moses and Elijah mattered. Moses, in Deuteronomy 18.15, said that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses was widely regarded in Jewish history as just the, great, the prophet of prophets, right? The, the greatest of prophets. And he says to them in Deuteronomy that, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Right? Moses, speaking of, of a future thing a long ways, a distance into the future from when he spoke this, saying that there's going to come, by the plan of the Lord and by the will of the Lord, a prophet even greater than me. And as much as you listen to me, listen to him when he comes. Right? And if there were no question about who Jesus is up to this point in Matthew, which there shouldn't be any question as to who He is, but if there were a question as to who He is, there should not be any question after this moment right here. The one that Moses prophesied of, uh, and Moses being present in the transfiguration. Moses not only was a prophet, but he was the representative of the law. He came down the mountain with the the tablets, with the... uh, Ten Commandments and spoke the law to the people of Israel. And so he's a representative of the law. The law came through Moses. Elijah being representative of the prophets, right? Proclaiming the message that God gave him to proclaim. And it's no mistake on the part of God that Moses and Elijah are present at this transfiguration of Christ. Earlier in Matthew... In chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. And again, it's no mistake that Jesus is standing here with the ultimate representatives of the law and the prophets in His transfiguration, showing, not just saying, but showing that He's come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so we have this interesting moment of of seeing a glimpse, again, a peek behind the curtain, if you will, of the glory of Christ. Peter, being who he is, in verse 4 says to Jesus, Lord, it's not good that we were here. Let me do something. Let Let me make three tents one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And while Peter was still speaking, he gets interrupted by God himself. Now, Peter has his moments where he's less than impressive and speaks before he thinks and, you know, these kinds of things. He's probably trying to do a good thing here, right? Can you imagine Peter, James, and John, what, they, what might be going through their minds in this moment? What they're witnessing? Peter probably does the only thing in that moment that makes sense to him. But let, let's set up something so these guys can hang around. And as he's telling Jesus of his plan, he gets interrupted by God himself. A bright cloud overshadowed them. Again, maybe reminiscent of the cloud that overshadowed the mountain in Exodus 24. And a voice came out of this cloud. So if the situation wasn't already overwhelming enough, seeing the glory of Christ, now the cloud begins to speak. And the cloud said, this is my beloved Son. This is God speaking, God the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And like Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, God says, listen to him. Listen to him. As important as Moses is in the history of Israel, as important as Elijah is in the history of Israel, God doesn't say, listen to all of them. He says, listen to my son with whom I am well pleased confirming that this is the one of whom Moses prophesied thousands of years earlier. right? So Moses is present, and God saying the same words of Moses, listen to him. And Moses really speaking God's words back in Deuteronomy. It's a confirmation, if if there were any doubt in anybody's mind of who Jesus is, the, the doubt should be erased right now. And when the disciples heard this, it says they fell on their faces and they were terrified. Can you blame them? Well, what would you do if, if you heard the audible voice of God? Have you ever like, thought about that? It, it would be a terrifying thing in a moment like this. When it talks about a cloud coming over the mountain, I, I don't think it was like, like sometimes you go outside and you can look at maybe over to, to the west and you see maybe these cool lenticular clouds over the mountains and they look kind of neat. I, I don't think it was that kind of cloud. I get the sense that this was maybe like the times that you go outside and you see dark clouds coming our way, and like you know something's coming with the clouds, <laughs> right? You know, like oh, th- this isn't going to be good, <laughs> right? Better close the windows, type of a cloud. I-, I think that's the kind of cloud that maybe is happening here in this moment. Something that catches their attention. The brightness of the cloud, maybe maybe there was lightning in the cloud. Who who knows? We we don't really have a lot of detail, but but this. This was a serious cloud, and they're terrified, and rightfully so are they terrified at the glory of God. Peter would write in his second epistle, 2 Peter 1, 16-21, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter saying not quite as succinctly as Moses and the Father essentially saying, listen to Jesus, right? We, we heard it, we saw it, we were there. We saw the transfiguration. It, it was God, right? This was God's handiwork, and the word of God doesn't come from men or humans. It comes from God Himself, through humans, carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? Orthodox Christianity would say that Scripture is God. Scripture would say Scripture is God breathed, and Orthodox Christianity would say that the Bible was written by Fallible men inspired by the Holy Spirit who is infallible. Peter confirms this. John, a little more succinctly in his Gospel, John 1.14, tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? We have these eyewitness accounts, and it's probably no mistake Part of the Old Testament law included the establishment of truth by two or three witnesses. Right? That's just how Israel lived. Right? If there was a matter that was up for dispute, truth was sta- established by two or three witnesses. So it's no mistake that Moses took three men up to the mountain with him. It's no mistake that Jesus took three men up to the mountain with him to establish on their testimony the truth of what they saw. As crazy as it sounds... This was no mistake. When John talks about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, that word dwell, it's the word tabernacle. Tabernacle in the Old Testament was was the portable temple. They had a tent that in their travels they would set up this tent called the tabernacle. And it was just understood that God dwelt in the tabernacle. That's where the presence of God dwelt. John tells us, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Right? We don't have to go to a place. We don't have to set up, establish, or erect anything. The Word became flesh and came to us. We don't have to go to Him. He came to us and He dwelt, He tabernacled among us. And in His tabernacling among us, in His dwelling among us, we have seen His glory. Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of His glory that's unique to them and we have their written testimony of it. But we also have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father full of truth and grace by their testimony to us of it. And so this moment of transfiguration that has... Peter, James, and John terrified. Verse 7 of Matthew 17, Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So the the moment was over. However long this moment lasted, we don't know if it was minutes or hours, but however long it lasted, it was over. And they're coming down the mountain, and Jesus commanded them, tell no one of this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Imagine them coming down from the mountain. Have you ever had an experience, whether you were terrified or, or whether it was exhilarating or exciting? And like, like you want to tell people about what happened, right? You want to tell people, here, here, here's what we just experienced a moment ago or yesterday or last week. And Jesus tells them, don't, don't tell anybody about this until after i've raised from the dead so jesus again predicting his resurrection right that that we don't want to overlook that part of it jesus telling us what's to come a couple of passages back the pharisees and the sadducees if you might remember they asked for a sign from jesus jesus just fed a bunch of people with with a little bit of food a couple of different times and the pharisees and sadducees came to jesus and said we we need a sign We need a sign to know who you are. And Jesus said there's going to be one sign. There's going to be an ultimate sign, and it's the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah shows us that, that Jesus will spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, and that he will come out conquering death, conquering sin. That's the ultimate sign of who Jesus is that he says will be given to a wicked and depraved generation. And here he's telling Peter, James, and John. Don't say anything about this until that happens. Don't say anything about this until that happens. So we see a number of things in this account. We see Jesus in His glory. Maybe not His full glory because I don't think they can handle it, but we see Jesus in His glory. Right? He, he gives them and us a glimpse as much as can be handled by humans. Right? We get this glimpse his face shone as the sun and His clothes were as white, as light. If that were the only thing that happened, it seems like that would be enough. But That's not the only thing going on here. We see that Jesus was authenticated by the presence of Moses and Elijah as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Do you remember what, what Jesus said about the law and the prophets and the greatest, the greatest commandment? His commandment is to love God with everything that you have, everything that you are, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in those two commandments, that that sums up the law and the prophets. Everything that came from Moses and Elijah and all of the Old Testament prophets is summed up in the command to love God and love the things that God loves. That sums it up. And Jesus is authenticated here by Moses and Elijah as that fulfillment of the law and the prophets. We're told by John that not just that God is loving, but that God is love. There's a difference. God is loving, but, but God is more than that. God is love. He is the expression fully of love. We see in the transfiguration account that Jesus is superior. We see His superiority with the statement from the Father, this is my beloved Son. Right? The Son of the Father, that, that matters. Right? No, nobody else holds that title. In all of creation, in all of history, all of yet to come, nobody holds the title of the beloved Son of the Father. Jesus is superior. He's greater than Moses and He's greater than Elijah. As great as those men were, He's greater than them. we see approval, the approval of Jesus. Not only is He the beloved Son of the Father, but He's the beloved Son with whom the Father is well pleased. Right? The Father approves of what the Son is doing. He approves of the plan of death and resurrection. He approves of it. We see that Jesus has authority in the command to listen to Him. Right, the Father telling us not not just Moses saying listen to him, but the Father saying yes, listen to him. That means that he, Jesus, has authority. He's to be listened to. Right? You ever when you were a kid, did your mom ever tell you like you better listen to your dad? It's because dad had authority, right? Better better listen to the son because he has authority. We see. The sovereignty of Christ in this. Peter, James, and John, they they were terrified. And again, rightly so. You you and I would be terrified if, if we saw what they saw. They're terrified and Jesus tells them, have no fear. And This isn't the first time that Jesus has said this. Remember a little while back in Matthew, they were on a boat out in the middle of the sea and things got rough. And Jesus walked on water, and they were terrified then to see Him walk on water out to the boat. They were a little ways out. He walked on water, and they were terrified. And He said to them in that moment also, Have no fear. Do you know what happened? The storm went away. So this isn't the first time that, that Jesus has told them to have no fear and that something happened. He tells them to have no fear, and they start to look around, and the moment, the scary moment has passed. So, sovereignty. We see intentionality in His command to them to tell no one about this until the resurrection has happened. Right? This tells us there's a plan that's unfolding here. This isn't just on a whim, oh, let's do this, or this sounds like a good idea. There's a plan that's unfolding. And not just a plan that was devised in the moment, but a plan that has been in place since eternity past. Right? This plan has been in place genesis chapter three after sin had entered the world we see god prophesying telling that the serpent will bite the heel of the woman but the heel of the woman will crush the head of the serpent that that that's the same plan of the resurrection that's ultimately going to happen where christ will conquer death by dying and he'll defeat sin in his conquering of death so this this has been a the long-standing plan (laughs) Jesus tells them the resurrection, again, is the ultimate sign of who He is. The Apostle Paul tells us that if the resurrection isn't true, like Christianity crumbles. Right? Christianity may, may have some morals that it preaches that makes the world a better place, but if the resurrection didn't happen, like Christianity crumbles. And there are no bigger suckers on the planet than those who have bought into Christianity if Christ was not raised from the dead. And so the ultimate question is, do you believe that Christ raised from the dead? If He did raise from the dead, everything He said and did matters, according to Tim Keller. If He didn't raise from the dead, we can take it or leave it. But, but if Christ really did, like if, if the sign of Jonah is real, and we believe it is, everything that Jesus did and said matters more than anything, right? Right? Nobody else has resurrected from the dead. Nobody else has conquered death and thereby conquering sin. As we pick up in Matthew 17 and verse 10, the disciples asked him then, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you, That Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Kind of cycling through all of the greats here Moses and Elijah, the greats of the Old Testament. John the Baptist, of whom it was said that there's been no greater man born to a woman than John the Baptist. That's a pretty hefty introduction to John the Baptist, isn't it? Right, the greatest man born among women. And John the Baptist would say of himself, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. I'm not even worthy to stoop before the Master and untie his dirty, grimy, gross sandals. John had a right view of himself in relation to who God is, right? John's whole mission in life was not to make a name for himself. John's mission in life was to prepare the way for Jesus, to prepare the way for the Messiah, to announce that the Messiah is here. That was John the Baptist. That's his whole thing. His whole thing. And he suffered for doing this. Do you remember how he died? He was beheaded. He was beheaded because he wouldn't stop proclaiming that the Messiah is here. And John had this ability, we know, to draw a crowd. He's a bit of an eccentric fellow, the Bible shows us. And he had this ability to draw a crowd. And when he would draw a crowd, he wouldn't say, look at me. He would say, look at Jesus. There's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That was John's message. And Jesus makes this correlation here as his disciples are asking him as peter james and john are asking him about elijah he's telling us that john the baptist is elijah and i don't i don't think what he's saying that he's the same person as elijah but just like elijah represents the prophets and elijah was a proclaimer of god's truth in that sense john the baptist is elijah as a proclaimer of god's truth as a proclaimer of god's message to the world Right, Elijah had, had suffering in his life. He, he ran for his life, as we just talked about a moment ago. John suffered. He was beheaded because he couldn't stop talking about Jesus and preparing the way for the Messiah. And Jesus rightly makes the correlation. Elijah has already come, so Elijah himself has already come long ago. Elijah, or an Elijah-like prophet in John the Baptist has already come, and they didn't recognize him. says so they did to him whatever they pleased. In other words, they killed him. And if they killed the messengers that came to prepare the way for Jesus, what do you think is going to happen to Jesus? Well, we know. We know how the story goes, right? They're going to kill Jesus. And Jesus knows this is going to happen. The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. If somebody came to you, somebody important in your life, somebody that you respect and said, hey, I need you to do this thing for me, but it's going to be hard. You're going to suffer for it. Maybe even a great deal of suffering. How quick would you be to say, okay, Jesus, Jesus came to earth knowing, fully knowing, fully aware that he was going to suffer, that he was going to die at the hands of those whom he created and die at the hands of those whom he loved. And raised his hand and said, okay, if that's the plan, okay. There was even a moment we'll see as we get closer to the end of Matthew where Jesus is in the garden about to go to the cross and he prays to the Father, like if there's any other way, like now's the time to tell me if there's another plan. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Like, okay. Jesus here knows that he is heading into suffering. And then the disciples, in that moment, light bulb goes on. They understand that he was talking about John the Baptist, who had, in the not-too-distant past from this, like he just died. Not long, like it would have been still probably fairly fresh on their minds, the death of John the Baptist. Right? They might have even still been grieving his death. And so this light bulb goes on like, oh, oh. That, that's what he's talking about. The Son of Man will suffer. And then Jesus would, would tell us, he would tell his disciples, they didn't like me all that much, they're probably not going to like you all that much. Right? I suffered part of the Christian life, like you sign up for a certain level of suffering. Right? We avoid suffering as much as we can. It's just our human nature. But Jesus tells us, they didn't like me, they're not going to like you either. I suffered, you're going to suffer if you have my name, if you follow me, you're going to suffer. It's part of what we sign up for, and it's part of just the counterintuitive nature of Christianity. Right? Jesus beat death, how? By dying. Counterintuitive. Jesus conquered sin by dying. Counterintuitive. Jesus gives us all these counterintuitive commands, the hardest of which, I think, is to love, love your enemy. Love neighbor, maybe maybe not so bad. Love your enemy, (laughs) who wants to do that? Counterintuitive. But Jesus, Jesus loved his enemies, and he shows us what enemy love looks like. Counterintuitive. And that's going to come with suffering. And and I'll tell you, there, there is no more believable martyr than the one who has suffered for their cause, whatever the cause is. Think about the movies that we like the best. The movies that we like the best are somebody suffering for a cause, whatever it is. Suffering for love, suffering for freedom, suffering for, you know, whatever. Those are the best movies because it's the ultimate story of the gospel of somebody who came and suffered for their cause, suffered for those whom he loved even though he didn't get love back. Jesus suffered his disciples maybe in this moment understood oh, maybe this is what we sign up for. And church history tells us all of the disciples, the twelve, the eleven disciples so the twelve minus Elijah, the eleven disciples, they all died martyrs' deaths because they couldn't stop talking about Jesus. They all died, they all suffered for their cause. And maybe for these three this is the moment where kind of the light bulb comes on and they realize oh, this is part of the deal. This is part of what we sign up for. In this passage, we get a glimpse of glory. We get a glimpse of authenticity, superiority, approval, authority, sovereignty, intentionality, just in this simple act of the transfiguration. But we would do well to remember not not only the power and the glory and all of these aspects of who Jesus is, we would do well to remember what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see more of the counterintuitive nature of Jesus. Jesus could have showed up on a horse with a shield and a sword and ready to take names. Now, that day is coming, but that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the first coming of Christ. He showed up as a baby. Very counterintuitive, the Messiah is here. Can you imagine the disappointment in in the the Jews who have for a long time heard the prophecy, one day the Messiah is going to come, one day the Messiah is going to liberate us. And they get word that the Messiah is here and they find out that it's just a baby. What a letdown that must have been, right? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we, we would not say that Jesus set aside His deity. He didn't, he didn't do that. right? We, we get a glimpse of His deity in the transfiguration. But He came in humility. And this was, again, part of the intentional plan. He came in humility, took the form of a servant. Mark tells us that He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And He became obedient to the Father, even to the point of, dying at the hands of those whom he came to save counterintuitive point of death on a cross one of the most excruciating ways to die and because that happened god has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name jesus could have showed up and said do you know who i am Right? I'm the son of the Father and I have the name above name. He didn't show up in that way. But God gave to him the name that is above every name and there's going to come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and everyone will acknowledge who Jesus is. They will acknowledge that. They'll confess that He is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day is coming. But between the first coming and the second coming, we see Jesus in, in His humility with glimpses of His glory, given the ultimate sign that the resurrection points us to who Jesus is, and that He is really who He said He was, and that He really did what we're told that he did and so I would ask you just to consider the Jesus that you believe in is is this the Jesus that you believe in? like we can believe in a Jesus who is just loving and kind and good and gracious and he is all of those things but he's more than just those things there's a lot of talk in the world these days I see a lot of kind of my Christian friends on social media talking about uh, you know Jesus just said to love your enemies with with no qualifiers to it and what they're meaning is that, that you know, we, we have this kind of jacked up definition in our society of what love is. Right? Society tells us that love is, is never saying no or never going against somebody, you know, letting people have their truth. Right? That, that's, not, that's not the love that God has. God has a love that can't be separated from the truth. And sometimes love tells us to do hard things and to say hard things. Right? And to call out things that, that need to be called out. But God, in His love, has made a way for us to be redeemed from the sin that so easily entangles us. And as we consider the communion table today, we get another glimpse of the glory of God in the breaking of His body and the shedding of His blood so that you and I could be free from the demands of sin, right? And so we do communion once a month here so that we would be reminded of gospel truth right that that Jesus died for us that it was necessary for him to die for you and for me We, we have this problem of being infected with sin and the only cure is the blood of Jesus to wash it away he had to die so that could happen his body had to be broken his blood had to be spilled so that you and I could come to him in faith and repentance which he grants us so that he could redeem us from our sin, and so that we could be called the sons and the daughters of God, that we would willingly come to Him with the confession that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as you consider the communion table today, consider what Christ has done for you. Consider Christ for you. Right, The communion table is not something that we do for Him. It's a reminder to us of what He's done for us. And so... Consider that uh, as you approach the table. Leah's is going to come up and just strum on her guitar and you can come and get the elements, just take them back to your seat and, and take them on your own uh, and then we'll close out with a song after that. Father, we're thankful this morning. Um, thankful that you love us so much that you would be willing to subject yourself to death, even death on a cross. You love us so much that you would subject yourself to suffering at the hands of those whom you created. Thankful that you love us so much that you would submit to the plan of the Father that would redeem unrighteous, uh, unholy sinners to a righteous and holy God. So help that to not be lost on us today. Help us as we look to Scripture to see a glimpse of your glory that we would be uh, reminded fully or as fully as we can be of who you are and what you've done for us. God, help us like the disciples, to to tremble with an appropriate amount of fear at who you are and your greatness and your might and your power, but at the same time to rest in your grace and in your love and in your mercy that you have for us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.